Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. All right, folks, welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, where today, one of the topics we've talked about often on this podcast, election integrity, news breaking out all over the place. We're going to get to that in a second. We're going to get to the very latest headlines, two or three very important developments, all based on the fact-driven reporting we did here at Just the News. You know, a lot of people had theories about the election. Some might call them conspiracy theories. We focused on facts. We put out 30 different reporters into the field in October, November, December, and January to find out what was true, what was fiction, and we brought you some really valuable stuff. We filed dozens of FOIAs, Freedom of Information Act requests, and we found real things, not, not things that were people were opining about for which they didn't know. We didn't get into conspiracy theories. We got into things like what did Mark Zuckerberg's money buy in the election, or uh, were those who are exempted from voter ID requirements in states like Wisconsin done so lawfully? The answer was no. The Wisconsin Supreme Court ultimately concluded those numbers we found were not uh, appropriately uh, given dispensation from voter ID rules. So we've had a lot of developments. And uh, we're going to, in a second, I'm going to bring you up on the headlines. I just want to tell you what else is coming on the show today because we have a very exciting show. I'm going to introduce you to a new player on the scene, uh, a new group, a new um, uh, watchdog, I would say, for the American people, their taxpayer monies, their ethics of those who we trust in government to be policymakers and political leaders and members of Congress. Joining us on the show today will be Michael Chamberlain. He's the director of a brand new group started earlier this year called Protect the Public's Trust. Protect the Public's Trust. It is a group that is studying and looking at all of our leaders, whether they're cabinet secretaries, agency heads, sub-cabinet officials, members of Congress, do they have ethical conflicts of interest that they have not disclosed? Remember earlier this year, we did a lot of work on Congresswoman Deb Holland when she was named the Interior Secretary. A lot of non-compliance in her financial disclosure forms. Things she left off, things she got wrong. We can't check for ethical conflicts if uh, a member of Congress or a member of the administration doesn't take their responsibility for filling out their ethics forms properly. So Michael's going to join us. He's going to tell us what they're doing, some early things that they have found in their work. And I think it's going to be a great, great uh, conversation. Ethics matter. 
so much of the profession I'm in today in journalism used to do this work. They seem to have lost interest in it. We want to renew interest in it here at Just the News. And I, we think the folks that protect the public trust could uh, be a great partner in working on transparency in government. We're going to talk to Mike on a few minutes. You're going to love that. I love his work already. All right, before we get there, uh, Bill Barr had a remarkable speech yesterday. We were the first to report it here at Just the News. We got the audio. And in it, he takes on the extraordinary um, concerns that many parents have about leftist teaching, critical race theory, transgenderism, new additions to the curriculum in schools that parents may not have even known their young children, their middle school children, their high school children were being taught. Bill Barr put a line in the sand yesterday, and he said it was time to end these things because some of these leftist ideologies amount to a official sanction of religion, basically a secular religionism. And he spoke out very strongly against it, and he said he thought the Constitution was being violated, particularly the Establishment Clause, and that free speech was being usurped from parents, the right to have uh, free speech over their, uh, their children's learning. A uh, very powerful speech. He also suggested the ultimate panacea would be a new era of school choice vouchers, parents being portable, taking their school tax dollars and being able to pick the school of their choice. We're going to play an excerpt from that speech in a little bit right after we interview Michael Chamberlain. But first, headlines from the front lines of the election integrity debate ongoing in America. Some big developments. I'm going to start with the big one. Breaking news at justthenews.com right now. A Georgia judge has ruled that the Fulton County, that's Atlanta, Fulton County absentee ballots may be unsealed for an inspection, an integrity inspection. This is a major win for those who wanted to inspect these ballots, who had fears that weird, th weird things were going on, like ballots showing up in the middle of the night or under tables or being unfolded like they weren't in envelopes like they're supposed to be. Important development. Check it out at justthenews.com. Also in Georgia, let's stay there for a second, Vernon Jones, the Democrat turned Republican, the pro-Trump Democrat we heard a lot from in the election. He's been on this show before. He says if he's elected governor, he's challenging Brian Kemp in the Republican primary, he will do an Arizona-like audit in the state of Georgia. Well, guess what? The Georgia decision today actually opens the door for such an audit. Why? Because the absentee ballots in the largest county, the bluest county, in Georgia are now available for inspection by an audit. Important developments there all day long, and we're going to keep you up to speed on those as they uh, continue to break across the, uh, uh, the various um, fronts. So two important stories there. Now, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Michael Chamberlain, the head of the Protect the Public Trust, a new nonprofit. We're going to learn everything they're doing right after this. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. 
All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest with a group with a very, a new group with a very special mission. Joining us right now is Michael Chamberlain. He's the director of the Protect the Public's Trust, a new nonprofit that started working earlier this year to help us, the American public, the taxpayers, police for ethics conflicts in government, in Congress, uh, so that we can have a more ethical and more transparent government. Michael, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, John. I really appreciate it. It's great to be here. Well, congratulations on the launch of your group, and I want to get into that in a second. But I love when uh, we introduce a, a new character, new uh, a new entity to kind of give a little background. You you worked in civil service, right? You've been a civil servant yourself before you you went into this um, uh, into this new group. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work at the education department. I did. I worked at the U.S. Department of Education, and I was in the Office of Communications and Outreach and. My primary role when I was, while I was there was to lead the department's rural outreach, so I dealt with national organizations and uh, local and state groups and school district people and, and people and organizations all across the country. And so it was really enjoyed the federal service. There's a lot of great people that work in government, public servants that are career civil servants that they're really dedicated, they're really hardworking, and they're really ethical people. Uh, but there are also some who don't always follow the rules. And so at uh, Protect the Public's Trust, we believe that public service is a public, trust, is a public trust. And the American public rightfully holds or has high expectations for the people who serve. And just getting involved in conflicts of interest and improper and illegal behavior really tarnishes the reputation of everybody who serves. And so our group is a, a group of people who are retired and former federal officials, uh, researchers and attorneys and communications professionals like myself, who really want to make sure that we're helping to restore the public's trust in their government and to be able to expose and to the light of day, the behavior that creates conflicts of interest and really doesn't reflect well on the rest of the workforce and doesn't serve the American public in the way they, that they deserve to be served. Yeah, listen, we learned in the Russia collusion case, or the vast majority of the FBI are just amazing agents. They do great work. They save us from trouble that we never learn about. They put bad guys away. They keep us safe. But a small number of bad actors people who might be tempted to change records or to lie to a court or to miss, uh, to give a false narrative that can really ruin the mission of an entire organization or certainly the reputation and the moral authority of such a great institution like the FBI. And so this is a really great uh, effort that you're, you're putting together. Describe some of the ways you go about it. I know you're using the Freedom of Information Act. You're going through all of the Office of Government Ethics forms that um, required officials uh, file. Uh, talk a little bit about just sort of the day-to-day -day work, things that you do to help protect the public's trust. Well, we rely in a lot of cases on open source information and sources like Just the News and others that are out there that are reporting on, on some of these things and some of the behaviors that officials are engaged in. But we also look at, at Freedom of Information Act requests. We've filed many of those. We get information and tips from whistleblowers and we have a tip line on our website and i'm sure i'd love to have your listeners uh be able to get access to that yeah tell it tell us that website a, a a... Tip. 
And our, our website is protectpublictrust.org. Protectpublictrust.org. And, and they can sign up to subscribe to our updates. And when we have press releases or we're filing FOIA requests and those types of things, they're able to get that, that information as soon as we release it. And also we have a tip line on there. So if anyone working in, in the federal government has some information about misbehavior or illegal activity or someone in the federal office violating any laws or rules or regulations, we'd certainly like to be able to know about it and, and be able to inform the public about it. And, and people can reach us at protectpublictrusttips at protonmail.com. Aha. That's a good email address to keep handy if you're working in government. And I know so many dedicated public servants that want to bring to attention things that maybe their colleagues aren't doing right or doing wrong. And uh, what a great opportunity of public service to have that um, uh, tip line and the site. I signed up this morning for the emails. Uh, I think it's a great thing and I'm, I'm really excited. And I want to now jump into some of the work you're doing. And let's start with something that's uh, interesting to me. Um, there, whenever federal aid is stopped or resumed, there are lots of rules involved at the USAID inside the State Department. Uh, and you're digging into, I think, one of the most important issues of the last couple of weeks, which is the resumption of Palestinian aid from the United States government. The Biden administration turned that uh, aid spigot back on. It had been shut off uh, uh, during the um, uh, Trump years for, for various uh, security concerns. Um, and you've been digging in to see if that was done lawfully and in compliance with the way Congress intended such decisions to be made. Tell us what you're, what you're finding, what you're looking at, what could be the public interest here that we should all be seeking to protect. Oh, exactly, John. The, a couple of years ago, in, in 2018, the Congress passed the Taylor Force Act, and the President, President Trump at the time signed it, and that prohibits funds being sent to the Palestinian Authority until the Palestinian Authority ceases paying stipends through the Palestinian Authority Martyrs Fund to individuals who commit acts of terrorism and to the families of deceased terrorists. And so the new administration came in and, and they have discussed resuming aid and I believe that there have been media reports that they have resumed or proposed resuming funding to the Palestinian Authority. And so or to organizations that would funnel money to the Palestinian Authority. And so we are interested in if they followed the rules properly during that process. Now, our organization isn't concerned with what policies are, are wise right. or, or beneficial. Our, our interest is, did the organizations, did the individuals involved, have they followed the rules yeah. to be able to change rules or to make policy or to award funds and all those types of things. And so that's what we're looking at. If, if anyone has stepped over the line or if they have violated, potentially violated any laws or come uh, against any regulations, then those are the kind of things that, that we're interested in knowing and we're interested in informing the, the American public about. Such an important mission. And like I said, you're not picking sides here. You're not picking winners or losers. You're not playing politics. If whatever administration was in power, if they resumed aid, they needed to comply with this law. Uh, it's a really uh, a great act of transparency and good governance to just get those answers for the American people. And you've begun that process, which I think is is uh, wonderful. Did, did anything 
give you reason or give rise to the idea that you should do this? Were there any whistleblowers? Were there any suggestions in the way the aid rolled out that maybe suggested that this law hadn't been fully um, practiced? Well, we did have some information, and some of it was public information that was re- reported by a particular media outlets. And so we were able to put that together and also uh, speaking with people who have contacts within the federal government. And so we can get ideas about what's happening from the whistleblowers and other people inside the government, as well as the sources in the media who happen to report on these types of behaviors and, and the the things that are going on inside the, the State Department and others. That is fantastic. That's sort of expertise that makes a group like Protect the Public Trust so important. You have these resources, you have this know-how, you have a conversation going on with people in the know, and that helps guide a really efficient investigation, efficient exploration of the issues, and I think that's great. You have another project that caught my eye. We're writing about it here at Just the News, and that is the Federal Records Act. I've written a lot about this over my 30-year career because a lot of times um, there is a temptation among government officials, either because it's convenient or maybe it's something embarrassing they don't want to put on the official government email, to use alternate forms of communication that aren't automatically captured by federal systems. And the, the, the law is there's a, a thing called the Federal Records Act that says all official business of the government needs to be recorded and preserved. And so the most famous cases of these are often private email accounts that we later find out people had. Uh, Hillary Clinton probably being the most famous, but not the only one. And was there official work business done on the private email account? And did the official comply with preserving those records for history, for the National Archives, for compliance with the Federal Records Act? And the world, it keeps changing. You know, email was the way for a long time, but now we've got a new form of communication. Hey, everybody's using these encrypted apps, you know, Signal. WhatsApp, many like it. Tell us what you're working on. Well, we believe that public records and public information laws exist for a reason. And the public rightly demands that the work of the government be done in the light of day. And so they know what's going on. And you mentioned all of these apps. And as technology changes, uh, the federal government in many cases is behind the curve on technology. And so it's hard to keep up. But the individuals who work in the federal government sometimes are ahead of the game. Uh, During some of the testimony in the the Senate and in Congress recently, some people happened to mention that they had heard that there were officials in some high-level officials in government agencies who may have been using some of these apps to communicate. And they're there, they're available, but as you mentioned, the, the work of the public servants has to be done in the light of day. And there are rules and laws that exist to make sure that the sunlight's able to shine on the work of the government. And if if they're using any of these applications that aren't available to FOIA requests and public information requests and, and the access applications that the media and the public are able to use, then you know, the American public can, can rightfully question whether they're acting in a manner that's putting the information out open and free of conflict and bias. And they have the perception can be that 
they may not be conducting themselves in the proper manner. Whether they are or not, the perception exists. So we filed freedom of information requests today with several agencies looking at to, to get records regarding the use of these apps, uh, if there has been any communications with Essex officials inside the agencies, and if they were aware of or if they had information about rules that, that they had put in place to cover these to make sure that the public records and the public business is continues to be public. Wow, that's a great thing. And you know, one of the things that would be concerning, because I know apps like WhatsApp and Signal have the ability to set messages to delete, you know, 30 minutes from now, a day from now, a week from now. So preservation has to occur before those deletions occur or the law is not complied with and the American people ultimately don't have the daylight on, on government actions that we would expect. So this is a really important thing. I, 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 you know, I hadn't thought this through. I use Signal sometimes. <clears throat> but I didn't think about it from the government records perspective, and I really think you found something here, Michael, that's, uh, that's really interesting. We're going to be following it at Just the News and, and have a nice story coming out with my colleague, uh, Natalie um, Middlestat, tomorrow. So I'm going to tell you, Middlestat will be working on that. Now, I want to go to one more before we uh, let you go, because uh, this is a fun issue for me. It's something I got interested in. I can't even explain how I got interested in it. But um, when uh, Deb Holland, the congresswoman from New Mexico, was chosen to be um, vice president, uh, uh, sorry, Joe Biden's um, interior secretary, we uh, mm -hmm. went to take a look at her financial disclosure form. And as we did for all the cabinet secretaries, by the way, we did this all through the Trump years. We did it all through, I think it's a very important thing where these ethics documents are filed. Sometimes people have to recuse themselves. So we look at them to see if there's anything newsworthy in it. And her ethics form first came in, and it was really kind of remarkable because it basically showed she didn't have any income in 2018, the year she ran for Congress. And you have to say to yourself, how does someone run for Congress if they don't have any money to live on? And over the course of three or four weeks, as we continued to ask questions, her ethics form changed two or three times, if I remember correctly, uh, adding, subtracting information. Uh, she ended up having to file an amended tax return for 2018 because she didn't file a tax return in 2018 until the vetting process discovered that. And uh, we, we've, we've used this as an example of showing that, hey, these forms can be valuable, but they're only valuable if the official takes the responsibility to fill them out correctly, honestly, and with the thoroughness that the law intended. And so our reporting's kind of dropped off on this. Uh, for the last few weeks, we are working on a larger project involving uh, Secretary Holland and some things that we learned about. But in the interim, you, you've continued to dig into this issue, and, and I'd love to learn a little bit about just what, what has interested you about this, what the Holland compliance or non-compliance with the form spoke to you and said to you as a group, and where you might take that inquiry next. Well, the manner in which she filed the, those disclosures forms appear to be haphazard. I, when I was in government, I had to fill out those forms, and we, were, we took them very seriously, but to make that many changes over such a small, not a, a large portfolio, it kind of pulls into question the ability to run a 70,000 employee agency and with a budget of approaching $17 billion yeah. is their, their new request for the fiscal year. So we have questions around that. And also there have been a number of personnel changes and shuffles already in that department, one of them involving her, her former chief of staff, who was her chief of staff when she was in Congress. Right. And 
some lapses of judgment in the, the words of the White House who forced her out of that position and into another spot. There, her first nominee for deputy secretary had to be withdrawn. Uh, that nominee had, was apparently the, had some uh, numerous potential conflicts of interest from prior work. And so that nomination was withdrawn. And that person still ended up with a high level position inside the Department of Interior where she could possibly be working on manners that she worked on before she came to the department, which that could, could create some ethical and conflicts of interest concerns. And so there are other organizations that are looking into that as well, and as we are. And, and the current nominee for deputy secretary also comes with a number of potential conflicts of interest. And so with those types of issues, the potential conflicts of high level staff, her haphazard manner in which she appears to have handled her financial disclosures in the past, you know, we really need someone who's a, a strong manager and is able to manage a complex budget and a large work staff. And so, you know, there, there are questions that we have about the ability of Ms. Holland to, to act in a manner that's going to, to enforce ethical rules on her staff. And, you know, we have a lot of questions that, that people have that about whether the department can truly earn the confidence and trust of the American public. And that's really important. It doesn't matter what political stripe they wear on their, their the bar of their shoulder. Uh, it really comes down to when you're in the employ of a Democratic or Republican administration, you're in the employ of the American taxpayer, and uh, you're expected to live uh, within a certain and operate within a set of rules and, and principles that, that preserve the integrity of government. Um, when you look at the example she set herself, um, when, when she doesn't file her own forms properly, has to amend them multiple times, <clears throat> doesn't give full answers to some of the senators who ask questions. I know Senator Barrasso and others were a little upset that they weren't getting straight answers from her. Does this send a message down through the rank and file to the deputies and the career people that, hey, if I don't have to do it, maybe you don't have to do it? What What is the, the concern of um, uh, precedent that, that a Deb Holland creates when, when her forms are as erroneous and inaccurate and complete and uh, multiple filed as hers were? Well, leadership comes from the top and people at lower levels who see, if they see their top leadership not adhering to rules or, or not treating things as seriously as they deserve to be treated, then that kind of gives them pause to think, why should they be treated any differently? If, if people are, are allowed to get away with misconduct or ethical violations, the people at the top, the people at lower levels start to believe that they should be able to get away with those too. And so those kinds of conflicts or misconduct, if they occur and they're tolerated with the people at the highest levels of of any organization, not just in government, but anywhere, that the people at other levels start to to not pay attention to their obligations as well. Yeah, that really it is. creates a culture where people don't take the rules as seriously as they deserve to be taken. Uh, that's important. And culture does matter in government, <clears throat> in offices and agencies, and in the private world too, private sector as well. Uh, the example does emanate from the top. 
Well, we're going to be following with great interest the work, Brian, that you're, uh, Michael, that you're doing in all the places that we're, uh, you're digging and, and, uh, you're, and learning. And uh, transparency really does make the American people feel better when, we're, uh, when, we're, uh, when we see someone checking for us and making sure our tax dollars or ethics are, are being followed. So we're really grateful. How do people stay in touch with you? You've got the email. Do you have a Twitter, Facebook account? We do. We are on Twitter and uh, and we are also on Facebook. Our Twitter account is at Publix Trust, so twitter.com, Publix Trust. And we are also on Facebook, and you can follow us on Facebook as well. Fantastic. All right. Well, those are important things to do. We're going to be following. We're going to be writing about these issues and, and look forward to having you back on the show from time to time as you help unlodge important information about the conduct of our, our government workers. And uh, I want to thank you, Michael, first for your public service, because you served in government, and now for creating a new public service in the form of this government, uh, government watchdog. We think this is going to be a really valuable agency, nonpartisan, just focused on getting people facts so that they can keep an eye on their government. What a, what a great idea, and we want to thank you for it. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about the work that we're doing, and we hope to continue. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll be following closely. That's great. Thank you, Michael. Have a great weekend. You do the same. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, I want to play a few sound bites from that speech from uh, attorney, former Attorney General Bill Barr yesterday about the public school system and some of the uh, new curricula that are coming out that had him concerned about the Constitution, about parents' rights. We're going to go to that right after this commercial break. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Really, really enjoyed uh, the conversation with Michael. He's got a very important project, a very important mission. This is a gap in the public watchdog space right now. Not a lot of people are doing the work that journalists used to do 20 years ago. And sometimes if they do it, it's just for partisan reasons. They want to get a gotcha against the Democrats or against the Republicans. Michael's doing it because it's in the public's interest. Uh, let's keep an eye on this great group and what they're trying to do. I uh, really enjoy that. Now, I want to get us to the weekend pretty soon. But before I do, I wanted to play a few moments of uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr's speech yesterday down in Florida. He was accepting a religious freedom award for his defense of religious liberty but he really spoke to parents in a very cogent, uh, strong worded way. His words were very, very harsh in condemning 
what he called a militant secular creation of religion in our schools, basically uh, trying to teach students to believe something that maybe their parents don't want them to believe that doesn't reconcile with Judeo-Christian values. And he said that this had reached such a fervor in school districts across the country that it was now in danger of violating the U.S. Constitution, both the Establishment Clause, which says that government may not establish or sustain a singular religion, uh, and possibly freedom of speech and freedom of religion uh, questions for parents and the ability to raise their children in the faith that they so choose. Uh, very powerful words. I just want you to listen to what Bill Bauer said. We're not going to play the whole speech. It was over 35 minutes. Play a little segment. Listen to what he had to say. Uh, it really has um, some resonance. It's been being talked about all across the country today. We had it here first at Just the News, and we put the audio up. So lucky and happy that we could do that for you. Bill Barr, just listen for a few minutes here what he has to say. Now, it seems to me that for the government to get into the business through public school indoctrination of students and secular belief systems that are directly contrary to religion uh, of the students, the beliefs of the students and the families raises fundamental constitutional problems. It certainly raises a free exercise problem. As the Supreme Court has recognized, there's nothing more fundamental uh, as a part of religious liberty and a part of our basic liberties than the right of parents to pass along religion uh, to their children. And it's monstrous for the state to be to interfere with that by indoctrinating students into altered alternative belief systems. So it seems to me that if a school is going to propose to teach a child that they get to pick their gender and no one else has anything to say about it, that's infringing on the free exercise of religion. <clears throat> but I also think we've reached the point where the establishment clause is implicated. When we're no longer talking about stripping religion out of the school curriculum and now talking about indoctrination into an affirmative belief system, a new credo resting on materialist metaphysics and substituting for religion, then the question is whether this involves the establishment of religion. I'm not the first to observe that the tenets of progressive orthodoxy have become a form of religion with all the trappings and hallmarks of a religion. It has its notion of original sin, of salvation, it has its clergy, it, it has its penance, it has its dogmas, its sensitivity, the whiff of any heresy, and even the burning at the stake, so far only metaphorically. Um, the decades-long secular project has ended up by proving the truth of uh, the late writer David Foster Wallace when he said, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Indeed, secular progressivism has already recognized, uh, it has already been recognized as a religion in the courts when it suits the secularists. So when non-believers sought conscientious objective, uh, objectors uh, status during World War II, the Second Circuit construed the phrase religious training or belief 
to include uh, that anything that is equivalent to what has been thought a religion or thought a religious impulse. The Supreme Court followed suit in a similar case during the Vietnam War. Instead of a belief system in the supreme being, uh, as the relevant statute required, the Supreme Court held that the objector to military service need only demonstrate a belief that is sincere and meaningful and occupies a place in the life of its possessor parallel to the, that filled by traditional religion. So in other cases uh, implicating the free exercise, the court referred in passing to secular humanism, Buddhism, and Taoism as examples. But while secularism has been afforded the protection of the religious clauses, it has generally not been the subject or subject to the prohibitions in the Constitution. And this creates an often overlooked constitutional double standard, particularly when it comes to education. The courts, in fact, have foreseen the potential for secularism itself becoming an established state religion. In one of the first cases abolishing school prayer, the Supreme Court acknowledged that the state may not establish a religion of secularism in the sense of affirmatively opposing or showing hostility to religion, thus preferring those who believe in no religion over those who believe. It's time to consider whether our public schools as currently constituted are doing exactly that. If secular progressivism indeed occupies the, occupies the same place as religion, and by all appearances it does, then how is it constitutional to have state-run schools fervently devoted to teaching little else? And how on earth can these institutions be allowed to use the state to punish traditional religious doctrines as hate speech? The current posture of public schools raises another question. Other than providing public funding for basic education, the other purpose of it was to effectuate the melting pot, to instill a sense of common identity, to promote a solidarity among students as Americans. But now the schools have taken the opposite mission of separating us, of teaching unbridgeable differences, of dividing us into many different identities destined to be antagonistic. If that's the purpose of education now, to, drive, to, to separate us from each other, to drive us apart, then why shouldn't we have diverse school system? The time has come to admit that the approach of giving militantly secularist government schools a monopoly over publicly funded education has become a disaster. It is deformed. <laughs> it has deformed and impoverished the very nature of the educational enterprise first by purging it of any moral or spiritual dimension, and then by trying to substitute for religion an irreconcilable rival value system. Parents wishing to opt out from the government's secular progressive madrasas are subject to a harsh penalty in the form of private school tuition that most cannot afford. 
As a result, our public schools have inevitably become cockpits for a vicious winner-take-all culture war over the moral formation of the next generation. It doesn't have to be this way. Public funding of education does not require instruction, that instruction must be delivered by means of government-operated schools. The alternative is to have public funds travel with each student, allowing the student and the parents to choose the school. Wow, what a speech. Those are hard words. Uh, Bill Barr really brought a gauntlet down on this um, movement in schools to teach critical race theory, that America is inherently racist, that America may, uh, that there are multiple ways that people can choose their gender and it's really a child's choice, not a parent's choice. A lot of debate for parents and their school boards. These things are going on in America right now. They're going on in school boards from Loudoun to Los Angeles, from, from uh, Florida to Minnesota. All across the country, parents are now waking up to learning that maybe the curricula that they didn't know was being taught to their children is being taught to their children. Uh, we had a development today on Just the News on this very thing. The Florida Education Commissioner, Ron DeSantis' cabinet member, has propagated a rule saying that teachers may not indoctrinate children by teaching critical race theory. One of many states, I think there are a total of 20 states that are now opposing critical race theory as a curriculum in schools. The federal government's trying to push it. Obviously, the New York Times and their 1619 projects trying to push it. Uh, teachers unions are trying to push it. Uh, governors, education secretaries, particularly in red states, but across the country, school boards, parents, this is going to be a defining cultural debate, a governance debate in America. And I think those words that Bill Barr spoke today, specifically the idea maybe that school choice gets a new life that vouchers for parents to make their children's school tax dollars portable so they can pick the school they want their children to learn at, that that may become uh, a revived movement as it was in the late 80s and early 90s, particularly in Wisconsin, where the then Governor Tommy Thompson and in Michigan Governor John Engler, names from the past, really made a generation of students in certain cities and states able to have uh, the school of their choice. Bill Barr suggesting that might come back because of these agendas that are being now injected into curriculum in the school. Important speech. We brought it to you. We want to hear, you a few, hear the words yourself so you can make up your own mind. Now, uh, we're almost wrapped up for the day. But before we do, I want to go to one of our great sponsors, one of our great um, uh, advertisers, because every day uh, when we are uh, looking for something new in our lives, we, we can introduce you to somebody. And I just did this the other day. I, um, I went to paintyourlife.com, one of our great sponsors. And I took a photo of my wife and one of her best friends who passed away sadly from cancer. Now, almost two years ago, it's hard to believe it's been two years that she left a hole in our lives as well as in her husband's life and her children's life. Then shortly after that, um, our best friend's daughter also passed away. So the family had two tragic losses in, in less than a year's period. It wrecked our hearts. It certainly put an enormous burden on the family, though they remain strong and go on. But I wanted to do something for my wife to remember that great friendship, to remember that great bond of family and friends, all the great memories over 30 years that we had 
with this friend and her family and her daughter and her husband. So I took one of my favorite photos of, of my wife, Judy, and, and this great friend, and, and I sent it over uh, to the great folks at Paint Your Life, and they came back with an oil canvas painting that made my wife tear up, made me tear up. I don't like to tear up. I'm not a guy who likes to cry. But this photo was so beautiful, so exquisite. It captured in time the incredible happiness that this friendship, this family relationship brought for years. And now that painting sits on our wall as a great memory to, to uh, our friendship, to our lost friend, to her lost daughter. What a great thing. If you want to do something special like that, right? If you want to do that, you just go right now to paintyourlife.com slash just news. Let me give that again. Paintyourlife.com slash just news. And you'll be able to uh, pick out a painting, pick out an idea, upload a photo. You're going to get a discount free shipping from our good friends at Paint Your Life. What a great idea. What a great thing. You're looking for a gift for Father's Day, for a wedding, for a graduation. Maybe you forgot your mom on Mother's Day. You, you got to come up with a good one. Well, Paint Your Life has all sorts of extraordinary opportunities. So go there today, paintyourlife.com. Take advantage of the Just News uh, discount and do something special today. You won't regret it. Judy and I look at that painting often now. We smile, eh, we might tear up more often, but they're tears of joy that we had so many incredible years with this incredible friend. And yes, we miss them, but we also know she's in a better place. Her daughter's in a better place. That painting is a part of our healing and our celebration of a great life. You can do that for someone, many different ways to do it. Paintyourlife.com, go check it out this weekend. It's a, it's a great gift opportunity for the different type of gift, one that lasts for a lifetime. All right, folks, we made it through another week. A lot of news, a lot of interviews, a lot of scoops. It's time to ease into that weekend and to start to have fun. For many of us, it's going to be a warm weekend, 80s, 90s, summer's here. Yay! Get the, get the Kansas City steaks on the grill. I hear the sound of sizzle. Enjoy your weekend. We'll be back Monday. God bless you. God bless your family. God bless this great country, the United States of America, as God always has. Have a great weekend. Check us out at justthenews.com if you need a news fix. If not, have fun. We'll be back Monday with more news.